Hello, my name is Maggie Pidcock on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, and today I'm here with author uh, Harry Crocker III to talk about his book, Robert E. Lee on Leadership, Lessons on Character, Courage, and Vision, which came out earlier this month. Thank you so much for coming on. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. Um, first, what made you decide to write a book taking a closer look at Robert E. Lee, who is one of the most controversial figures in U.S. history, I would say? Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. This book is actually, I wrote this book originally about almost 25 years ago. And uh, this is just a reissue of that book. But, but I guess it's a, a tribute to the, to the now controversy surrounding Lee that I've been doing a fair bit of media for it. I mean, if you asked me, I am 62 years old, and if you asked me what two things have changed most in my lifetime, I would say all this transgender craziness that was, you know, out of, uh, out of the blue, but also the changing attitude in this country to the Civil War. It, it, throughout, I mean, from the virtually the end of the Civil War, throughout the entirety of the 20th century, Lee became not just a Southern hero or a regional hero, but an American hero. And most Americans viewed the war as something like, say, America's Iliad, right? You had noble Greeks on one side versus noble Trojans on the other. And this was a view that was not a ideological or party political view. It was shared by all Americans. Two of the greatest liberal historians of the 20th century, I think, of uh, men like Ella, Samuel Eliot Morrison, Harvard-educated professor at Harvard, uh, Henry Steele Commager went to University of Chicago, famous liberal professor. Both of them, they, they collaborated on some books, but both of them took this attitude that the South was like this great underdog, <laughs> and that, wow, no, you know, Robert E. Lee, what a noble example of the Virginia gentleman, what a tragic hero. Oh, Stonewall Jackson, what an incredible Christian hero, a daring soldier. Oh, Jeb Stewart, what a dashing cavalier. And this, I mean, people even like uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt's father was old enough to be draft age for the Civil War. Didn't serve, but he was of that age. And Teddy Roosevelt's mother was actually from the South. Teddy Roosevelt gave several speeches in which he said something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing from memory, but you know, he said it in different ways at different times, but you know, here in America, we can take pride in both the glory won by the boys in blue who fought for Grant and, those, and the glory won by the boys in gray who fought for Lee, because both fought for the right as they saw the right. And that was the American attitude. Um, you know, the, if you look at America's greatest leaders of World War II, military leaders, Henry Marshall, the man who gave us the Marshall Plan, Dwight David Eisenhower, the commander of the Allied Forces. When General Eisenhower became president, guess whose portrait he kept in the Oval Office in the White House? Robert E. Lee. He ranked Robert E. Lee as one of the four greatest Americans. Henry Mar or George Marshall, rather, who you know was the epitome of the of the American soldier of the World War II era. Um, who was his hero? Robert E. Lee. He went to a school that had Marshall it was, went to the Virginia Military Institute, where Stonewall Jackson taught, and which is right next door, literally across a small lawn dividing the two places from what is now Washington and Lee University, where Lee is buried. So this, I mean, this is, this is a sea change that since the 21st century, people have, have, have taken this, this almost universal American view of the war and people like Robbie Lee, and instead 
reduced it to sort of like this, this to my mind, and my, it's bad history. It's sheer propaganda, and it's sort of reduced the war to sort of, I guess you'd call it maybe a sort of critical race theory version of the war. I mean, no one, no one who vandalizes your history, and I mean, here, literally vandalizing history, knocking down statues and ripping people's names out of the history books or you know, condemning them and all this stuff. No one does that out of good, good motives. I mean, to the point of even where, where Lee is buried, right outside there, his horse, Traveler, very famous horse, is buried. They've taken the gravestone, this is the administration of the school, took the, that gravestone away. The, the, these, these sort of grave robbers are not doing this because they are, they are uh, redressing some sort of wrong or they, are, or they are correcting erroneous history. They are creating erroneous history. And it was, it's no surprise to me, it should be no surprise to anyone, that when you knock down Lee's statue, well, guess who else is falling down? Everybody else. George Washington. Lee married into George Washington's family. Lee, Lee's father served under George Washington as a cavalry officer. But all the, of course, you know, Lincoln went down, because Lincoln, he, you know, the Homestead Act, he drove out Indians, right? And there's no end to this. There's no end to this, and it is both idiotic, it is vile, it is propaganda, and it is meant, it has, it has a nefarious and, I would say, even evil purpose, and that is to poison the well of American history, so that anyone who takes a drink from that well thinks, oh, pff, they spit that out, and they go, oh, it's all racism and oppression and horror, and, and that is all so wrong. When the, when the statues for people like Lee and whatnot went up, they went up not only because these men were regional heroes or considered regional heroes, not only because they were great soldiers, which they definitely were, but because they were regarded as great men. And no one more so than, say, uh, Robert E. Lee. I mean, Robert E. Lee had served the country his entire life. He went to West Point. He was known as the Marble Man. He had no demerits at West Point. He was a superintendent at West Point later. He served his country in, in battle in the Mexican War. Um, and he, went, he was regarded as the finest officer in the Army. At the beginning of the war, there's maybe a story you know, it's a famous story. At the beginning of the war, uh, Lee was actually offered command of the Union forces. Mm-hmm. Lee was known to be opposed to slavery. He said slavery was, you know, he said more or less that any educated person knows that slavery is wrong. Interestingly, he said it was worse for the white man than the black man because no one should have that much power over another person. So he opposed slavery. Um, he was opposed to secession. He said, I want no other flag but the Stars and Stripes. I want no other anthem but Hail Columbia. And yet, uh, when he's offered Canadian Union Forces, he says, look, for all my love for the Union, I cannot consent to turn my sword against my family, my home, my native state. Save in defense of Virginia, I will turn my sword on none. A union that can only be held together by swords and bayonets has no charm for me. That's what Lee said, more or less. And even though that is considered controversial now, back in the day it was considered tragic that he'd been forced to make this decision. It would seem to me that someone who takes a humane view of things, an old-fashioned liberal, as in broad-minded view of things, would think, wow, that was a... That was a tough decision, maybe, but that's also a, a very understandable position. 
I mean, how many of us today would want to take up arms against our own family, against our own states, against our own homes? And Lee was uh, very big on the idea of conscience, a well-formed Christian conscience. And he, when he made this decision, which his wife said he made with tears of blood, he, he, had, he had several sons, and he said, I don't want them to be guided by what I did. If I have done wrong, let them do better. Let them follow their own conscience. And they all ended up following him, and actually all serving in the Confederacy. But, but anyways, that, you know, sometimes I, I ask people to cast themselves, to try to recast the Civil War into modern terms. So, for instance, suppose the South were to pull out again in 2024. Say, say, a candidate wins the White House, they disapprove, they say, no, we're out of here, we can't, we can't put up with this any longer. Okay, we're out. How many people today would think the appropriate response would say, a re-elected Biden administration would be to send tanks across the 14th Street Bridge that spans the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. to Virginia to blockade southern ports and carpet bomb southern cities. I think, I used to think a lot more people would be opposed to that, but I still think a majority of Americans would think, that's, that's not right, that's wrong. But that was sort of the lead position Lee was in in 1861. After the war, Lee corresponded with a man named Lord Acton. Lord Acton is the man who gave us the famous phrase, the power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And he told Lee in a letter that I mourn more for what was lost at Appomattox, where Lee surrendered to Grant, than I rejoice for what was won at Waterloo, which is where Wellington defeated Napoleon. And the reason he said that was because he believed that secession was a check on federal power, a necessary check on federal power, part of the American system of checks and balances. Because if, if the federal government had to behave in such a way that it didn't alienate the states that they didn't want to leave, it would have to mind its manners. It would have to be very uh, restricted in what it did. And he thought this was a, a guarantor, another guarantor of, of liberty to the American system. Over the last 20 years or so, we have seen our history disparaged unjustly. And then with that in mind, then, who is the intended audience of this book? This book is oh, the this. best-selling book I've ever written. It's sold over 100,000 copies. Um, and I know that it's been used by all sorts of people. I mean, from businessmen to... Uh, well, especially, I, actually, I was once speaking at, at a conference in California. This was a long time ago. And it was a, it was a Catholic conference. Mm-hmm. And I, I've recently written a history of the Catholic Church, and I thought that I would be autographing a lot of copies of that book. I discovered that a Catholic hospital in Southern California was using this book, Robert E. Lee on Leadership, to teach moral leadership and management, Christian management. <laughs> so its influence has, has gone far and wide. But it, the great thing about Lee is that he, he does embody um, all sorts of eternal principles, and uh, both that you can apply in warfare, certainly. He's a great strategist and tactician. Um, but also just to lead men, how to lead people, how to understand those strengths and, and weaknesses, how to be a good father. Um, and a lot of it is just, is, uh, it's a moral example. I mean, Lee believed, um, like I'll, I'll, instead of me telling you what he believed, I'll quote him. So Lee believed in divine providence in a very strong way. And 
because he believed in divine providence and he believed that duty was one of the highest virtues, um, he believed he had no interest in being a, in ever being a victim. Right? He always wanted to take his circumstances and do the very best he could within them because he thought that's what was required of him as a soldier, as a man, as a Christian. So imagine, say, after the war. After the war, Lee has lost everything. His home is now a cemetery. His home was Arlington Cemetery. What is now Arlington Cemetery? He lost his home. He's lost his money. He's lost everything you can imagine. He's lost his citizenship. His state is under martial law, under federal occupation. He only has five years to live after the end of the war. And in that time... Uh, he's offered, actually, I should go back a bit. He's offered the presidency of this college called Washington College. You have to remember, too, that not only has Lee lost everything, but the South is devastated. So, roughly speaking, a quarter of the draft age white male population of the South is dead. Two thirds of the South's economy up in smoke, destroyed. And when Lee goes and accepts this presidency of this college, Washington College, it has been reduced to four professors and four, 40 students. Well, in his, again, he only has five years to live, but in that short time, he builds on the school's classical curriculum and decides to make it a place that will lead in the rebuilding of Virginia, the South, and the reunification of the nation, the restoring a sense of amity. And he injects into the school all these things he didn't have before, a medical school, law school, engineering, I mean, all these things will be practical, farming, business, even journalism, so that um, these men will, will, will graduate with a classical curriculum but supplemented by things that were, will help them rebuild their civilization. And that was his thing, is always trying to do your best, always trying to make the best of circumstances. In a letter to his daughter, he had one of his daughters named Mildred, she, she said something like, you know, I know what I should be doing, but I was, there are things I, I want to do instead. <laughs> and he said, well, look, that conflict is something that all people feel. But all you need to do is to always do what is right, and it will become easier by practice. And if you do that, you will have the benefit of an approving conscience. And he says that idea oh, in different circumstances over and over again. If you do your duty in all things, you will have an approving conscience, and that is the highest benefit you can have. He says that in another instance after the war, where a pastor comes up to him and says, oh, General Lee, if we've done this, that, or the other thing, these different battles, maybe we could have won. And he says, yes, that's all very sad. But we did our duty to the best of our ability, and now we leave you know, the result up to God. It's interesting. I actually looked very seriously at going to Washington and Lee um, and oh. ended up here instead, but... That was really interesting to sort of hear about that now and also just read about that and knowing what I know. My eldest son actually went to VMI right, right across the grass there. and I, Lexington is a, is a lovely place. But both of them, even with their backgrounds and their heritage, are at, like everything else. They're at war with their heritage and for no good reason. I mean, Stonewall Jackson taught at VMI. That is a fact. He inspired you know, hundreds if not thousands of students there. His statues are removed. That's that's absurd. How how petty is it to remove the gravestone from Traveler's grave? I mean, Traveler, my my, I and my kids, we used to go there all the time, and people used to leave coins and apples. You know, it's like 
in homage to poor old traveler. Um, uh, just it just seems to me so. I mean, again, that these the people who do things like that are not well intentioned. Mm-hmm. They they have really bad intentions, and it's just so petty and evil and malicious as to defy belief. But then you compare them to someone like Lee, who again, well, I'll give you make, give you two other quotes. One is from a a man who met Lee. This is a man named Field Marshal Viscount Wolseley, Garnet Wolseley. He was the head of the British Army during uh, Queen Victoria's reign, part of Queen Victoria's reign. And he actually met Lee, and he said, look, I have given my position. I have met many of the great men of my time, but no one have I met who ever seemed as though he was cast from a different mold and a finer metal than other men, than Robert E. Lee. Mm-hmm. And that's the way, I mean, that's an extraordinary statement. It may be extraordinary, it, well, it is extraordinary itself, but that's what people thought about him. And, and, and maybe this next year I'll tell you is an example of why. One time, a woman came up to Robert e. Lee and held up her infant son to him and said, what should I teach my son? Now, if this were today, if somebody held up their son to, you know, pick your, whoever you're being, <laughs> to, 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 but they might say, oh, well, uh, let's see, uh, teach him self-esteem or... Uh, teach him self-expression, or um, teach him that bad, or, you know, good boys don't make history, right? <laughs> Be aggressive, or whatever it is. But here's what Lee said. Lee said, teach him to deny himself. And that's because Lee, again, believed in duty, this idea of Christian duty, of serving others. That's what you did. And interesting enough, Lee, a man who led men in battle, a man who was a soldier. One of the other uh, uh, touchstones of Lee is his uh, belief, as a, his belief as a gentleman. That one of the things that defined a gentleman was the forbearing use of force, so that the strong don't lord it over the weak, the superintelligent don't lord it over those less intellectually gifted, and and you and you respect people's consciences. As I said he did earlier with his sons. That was a big part of his beef with the abolitionists. Lee, interestingly enough, was actually involved in the arrest of John Brown of Harper's Ferry, who was sent there to go arrest him. But interesting enough, two things about that. One is John Brown wants to start a slave insurrection. That's exactly what Lee did not want to happen. Lee thought the way that slavery would go away was through Christian moral suasion. You had to give it time and respect people's consciences. The last thing he wanted was, and he thought this was just, you know, putting people's backs up and was wrong, was to have a slave insurrection, to have a war over this. That, he thought, was just the wrong way to do it. Um, but also, think about when he goes to arrest John Brown, he has a, he's given command of a group of Marines. He has the Marines with their, their muskets have no bullets. They only go with bayonets. And the reason he did that was because he didn't want to risk civilian casualties. John Brown was holding hostages at Harper's Ferry. And that was another big part of Lee's um, thing, is that he didn't want, throughout, throughout his military career, he tried to guard against, Christ, or, or, against civilian casualties, against civilian suffering, which, I have to say, was in contradistinction to the federal forces, the Union forces, 
because they, as, a, just as part of their war uh, strategy, was, it was total war. We're waging war, not just on the Confederate Army, but on the South. We're going to burn out the Shenandoah Valley, right? <laughs> we're going to... Waging war on civilians was part of the, of the game. I mean, it's like Sherman's march to the sea, burning everything down. So Lee thought that was heinous, horrible. And again, as part of all those ideas, you don't, you don't use force when you don't have to, right? And, and, you, and you try to lead, you lead men in battle by example. You, you try to win arguments by Christian moral suasion. You don't, he thought, he thought it was, that was part of what it meant to be an American was that you rely on this sort of, um, this individual right, and, and respect for individual rights, and, and conscience, and you don't force people to do things. Mm-hmm. Even when he was a, a, a president of Washington College, he said, the one thing I want more than anything else is to have my graduates be good Christian gentlemen. But, but, chapel at the school was no longer compulsory. And, the, and it was this very same idea. You know, he thought that, that that virtue, which can only exist when it's constantly being supervised, is not virtue at all. You're going to go out in the real world, and you have to be able to manage yourself. And that, too, was part of his thing. He would, when, that, when a student would come in, he would find out what that student's religious denomination was, and he would contact <laughs> in Lexington whoever the pastor or priest or whoever, you know, uh, the rabbi of this, of this person, um, and said, here's your, you know, here's a member of your flock, take care of him. But he wanted these men, young men to grow up to be self-governing gentlemen. My name is Megan Pidcock on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, and I've been talking to... Uh, author Harry Crocker III, talking about his book, Robert E. Lee on Leadership, Lessons on Character, Courage, and Vision. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you.